And good morning. Susie is ta- <laughs> taking another day off. I don't mean it that way. Because unfortunately, well, we're glad that Susie came back from her CCO Good Neighbor tour. However, she got some kind of a bug. In the meantime, probably on one of those airborne uh, Petri dishes. But uh, Susie, you get well. We hope uh, she's back, you know, next week for sure. So get well. In the meantime, Denny Long here. Nice to have you uh, with us on this uh, Sunday morning. We're going to be uh, inviting, and we have, in fact, it's we've kind of Swiss rolls. Dr. Charles Resnikoff is uh, is in studio. Doctor, good morning to you. Good morning. We. Uh, we we normally have it reversed. The host is usually in studio, and the guest is is on the phone or some other remote location. We've kind of uh, flip flopped uh, this morning. Thanks for coming in to uh, CCO this morning. We're talking about addiction. Uh, in case you are not familiar, Doctor Reznikov is a uh, with Hennepin Healthcare. He's an addiction medicine physician. And uh, Doctor, I was listening a few days ago when I heard you were going to be on. To a podcast uh, you uh, did with uh, our friend uh, Dr. David Hilden, uh, which, by the way, is a great podcast. A little plug for Dr. Hilden. But I was going to ask you, you know, where you got your medical training, and and beyond that, what what prompted you to get into a, a, a addiction medicine? And you told uh, Dr. Hilden about uh, some story about a guy named Joe. Can you kind of relate briefly that? Um. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking, and thank you for having me on the radio. Um, I got my training at University of Wisconsin, was medical school, so I'm originally a Badger, but then I, I'm happy to be in Minnesota. I've been here for 21 years, and I continued after medical school as an internal medicine resident at Hennepin Healthcare. Following that, I went to an addiction fellowship, and why did I go into addiction uh, medicine. There's a lot of reasons for that, but honestly, the 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 primary reason was just because I loved that part of medicine. I I enjoyed talking to people who had. And it sounds funny to say this, but I enjoyed talking to people who had addictions or were using drugs. Sure. I uh, I felt that I related well to them, and uh, it was a field that seemed like a good fit. So, I mean, I think that was the simplest answer. I've had a number of people in my life who've been affected by addiction, but I think all of us have. I mean, we all know someone in our family or among our friends who've been affected by addiction. I think the one thing I would add is that those people in my life who've had addictions have been really fortunate to so far have good outcomes and to be doing well, to be living well with their addiction in recovery. And that's also made me really hopeful uh, for for people who have addictions, um, so you know, it's been a it's been a really good career for me. Uh, we we wanted to maybe focus on, uh, of course, the latest uh, in the news uh, on marijuana, but actually, can I ask? Can you really get hooked? I'm I'm thinking about a list of of things like alcohol. Is alcohol still the most common addiction? Would you say or or no? Yeah, perhaps you would. One would exclude tobacco on the list because mm-hmm. I think tobacco is still the most common, you know, almost 20% of Minnesotans, maybe a little less than that now, use tobacco. That would be probably the most common addiction. And then after that, second to that would be alcohol. Yeah, alcohol is the most important addiction that we treat other than tobacco. I remember many years ago interviewing uh, various uh, addicts, uh, basically heroin, 
and other heavier things. And they all said to a person, the toughest thing they've had to do besides kicking that habit was tobacco. Yeah. Yeah, the, it, tobacco, I mean, the good news about tobacco for those listeners who use tobacco or any nicotine product, if they want to quit, is there are a lot of great tools available. So they should really ask their doctor because there are many medications and other counseling techniques and um, there's a lot of great tools available to help people quit nicotine products or tobacco products. But yeah, it is it is very challenging to quit. It's And if one continues to use tobacco, it does really strongly affect their health. Uh, so it, it's a very important topic. I want to include our, uh, our listeners for sure. If you have any questions for the doctor uh, about addictions, uh, any kind, 651-461-9226. It's worth it uh, for a phone call or a text, whichever is easier for you this morning. 651-461-9226. Uh, we were talking initially, I mentioned marijuana, and I guess, I mean, is it, is it too general, broad of a statement that you can really, people can get addicted to anything? I remember years ago, people say, nah, you can't get addicted to pot. Can you? Uh, well, yes. Uh, the You know, the question, can you get addicted to anything, the answer to that would actually be no, at least as addiction medicine medically understands addiction. Uh, addiction is a disease where a, a specific part of the brain becomes out of balance. Not everybody who uses drugs gets addicted. And not every you cannot get addicted to, to anything or everything, but there is a list of drugs that interact with this region of the brain in a way that you could get addicted to the drug. Marijuana certainly can cause an addiction, but it doesn't cause an addiction in everyone. And the other thing I'll say about addictions, because this is important for understanding marijuana addiction, we have a lot of stereotypes of what an addiction looks like. And marijuana addiction, when it happens, does not fit our our stereotypes of what an addiction looks like. So, you know, a lot of people don't believe or don't want to believe that marijuana can cause an addiction, but in some people, it does do that. I'm thinking, too, about... Uh, um and various addiction, whether it be alcohol or in your practice right now, what are you seeing? And I'm sure that COVID over the last two, three years has, has maybe changed that, uh, that whole scene with addictions. Has it or has it not? Yeah, COVID was, in, you know, very interesting. I shouldn't, you know, I, I, I say that, you know, facetiously, but sure. COVID was very interesting effect on addiction because some people really used COVID as a time to be more healthy. They sort of stayed with their family. They didn't go out as much. They worked on their health. And some people did really well in COVID, whereas a lot of people struggled. They felt isolated. They felt stressed. And they actually, it worsened their addiction. So, you know, it could go either way with COVID. But I think generally, I mean, we think COVID probably made addictions worse overall. Um, Some people did better, but a lot of people did worse. We saw a lot of alcohol. Um, There was a lot of alcohol use during COVID. That was a major problem. And then also a lot of opioids. Fentanyl is the commonest opioid these days. And methamphetamines. 
And there's a lot of methamphetamines out there right now. So I would say those are the three big ones that we saw a lot of during COVID. Can we talk a little bit about Hennepin Healthcare and your practice there with your colleagues? What uh, What is that organization, that part of Hennepin uh, at, uh, with the addiction section there? Who, who do you work with? We have a wonderful division of addiction at Hennepin Healthcare that provides lots of different resources. We have an outpatient clinic uh, where people can come and get an assessment and get treatment uh, in our clinic. We also provide inpatient services for people who are hospitalized. And if they have an addiction and they're hospitalized for any reason, we can come to their bed and visit them and and help work with them. Um, We have amazing researchers that are doing just groundbreaking addiction research at Hennepin. And we have these some colleagues that are doing incredible education efforts to educate other doctors throughout the state and really nationally. So I'm very proud to be a member of this team. We have a great group and we we treat people where they're at, no matter where they're at, inpatient, outpatient, in the clinic, in the hospital. And we're really working to hopefully advance the field of addiction nationally. Dr. Reznikoff is with us. Dr. Charles Reznikoff is an addiction medicine physician at Hennepin Healthcare. If you're just joining us this morning, Susie's off. She's feeling a little under the weather. She'll be back next week. Danny Long in the meantime. Call us or text us with your addiction type of question. We're focusing on uh, addiction in general. We are talking about the marijuana. 651-461-9226. We're getting a ton of uh, text messages all, already, doctor. Uh, let's, let's, I don't want to miss out on too many here before we run out of time. Um, what a texter says this, what about food? Is that an addiction? Can it be? I know that sometimes people think addiction to food is silly. I also know that there are such groups as overeaters anonymous. So question is from the texter is food addiction real? That's a great question. Uh, there, well, what is a hundred percent real is that there are eating disorders that are not what we normally think of as an eating disorder, but there are disordered eating behavior patterns that look a lot like an addiction. I'll tell you the scientists debate whether to strict, you know, to call it an addiction, a food addiction or to call it something else. But whatever you call it, there are sort of people do have unhealthy relationships with food that does look a lot like an addictive behavior. Um, you know, by the letter of the law right now, medically, we don't call it food addiction, but we do recognize this issue happens and and there are ways of addressing it, of getting help. Um, so I think it's a great question. I think it has a little bit to do with, you know, nomenclature, whether you want to call it an addiction or not. But, you know, it, it's real. It's a real thing and there is help available. You mentioned things like po- uh, uh, meth, and uh, fentanyl. What is fentanyl, by the way? Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. So opioids, people would know of heroin or uh, prescription opioid pain medicine. Fentanyl is a synthetic version of that. Historically, fentanyl has been very useful for anesthesiologists in the operating room. In fact, anyone who's been to a surgery or a procedure may have already received fentanyl. It's a very common medication given in the operating room to perform anesthesia during a surgery. Unfortunately, um, 
you know, sort of drug dealers or drug cartels learned how to manufacture illicit fentanyl. And they've introduced it into the illicit or street drug supply as a kind of a replacement for heroin. The problem is that fentanyl is so strong that if you use any street drug, if it if it is in fact fentanyl, it may be too strong for the for the person and they may have an overdose. So so in other words, fentanyl is a very, very strong synthetic opioid that is currently in our street drug supply. And I'll say one more thing about fentanyl. It's well known now that there are people making counterfeit pills that mm. look all the world like a Percocet or an oxycodone or a Vicodin or whatever pharmaceutical pill you think you're taking. It may very well be a counterfeit pill. And it doesn't have the drug you think is in it. What it really has in it is fentanyl. So you think you're taking a five milligram oxycodone pill and you're actually taking a fake fentanyl pill that was made by some, you know, drug dealer in their basement and who knows how much fentanyl's in there. And that's causing a lot of harm. I mean, you know, I'll give you one famous example. But Prince uh, was supposedly thought he was taking a pharmaceutical pill, but it was in fact a counterfeit pill that had one of these synthetic opioids in it. And that's part of the reason he died. Wow. Now, we've heard those stories in uh, in recent years, for sure, that that particular one, yeah. especially. Uh, Dr. Reznikoff, hang on. We're talking with uh, Dr. Charles Reznikoff from Hennepin Healthcare. He is an addiction medicine physician. We've got about another half hour of the show to go, but I, we, we're going to check out that uh, weather forecast here in a moment. But if you have any questions pertaining to our topic this morning, we'd love to hear from you, either by phone or by text, 651 461 9226. We'll be back with more here on News Talk 830. This is WCCO. It's a Sunday morning on WCCO. Danny Long filling in for the ailing Susie Jones. We hope Susie will be back. I'm sure she will next uh, Sunday. In the meantime, if you're just joining us, our guest this morning is Dr. Charles Reznikoff, who is an addiction medicine physician at Hennepin Healthcare here in the Twin Cities. Answering those addiction questions, we're talking, and, and many folks would like to kind of uh, come back to the topic of of pot. In fact, uh, a texter says this, Doctor, please discuss, if you will, uh, uh, marijuana addiction further and include how it differs and medication treatments to consider. Great question. Um, there's a, well, the, 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 the second question there is challenging one of the reasons why marijuana addiction can be challenging when it happens is that we don't really have great medical treatments for it. Uh, there is a study of a treatment in adolescents who use marijuana and have marijuana addiction using a medication called N-acetylcysteine, which is a long, <laughs> long name, but it's actually a very safe old medicine that may lower marijuana cravings in young adults. That said, we don't have great treatments for marijuana addiction. So if it happens, when people come and ask me, and they do sometimes, for help quitting marijuana, I don't have awesome medication tools for them. So what does marijuana addiction look like? Well, the the first thing is that people do become physically dependent on marijuana, meaning they have tolerance to it 
they can use higher and higher doses, doses that someone who had never used marijuana would never use such a high dose or should never use such a high dose. But an experienced marijuana user uses higher and higher doses, so they have physical tolerance. And then when they stop the marijuana, there is a withdrawal. It's not life-threatening. It just feels like you're under the weather. You have headaches, upset stomach, irritable, can't sleep. So there is a, a marijuana withdrawal that occurs. Usually it takes about a week. But the more important aspect of marijuana addiction is, is and really what addiction is, is just about priorities in life and prioritizing marijuana above what we would consider other healthy things in life, whether that be family, work, one's health, one's safety, uh, you know, financial wellness, etc. And so the person who may be addicted to marijuana may be finding that their significant other is complaining to them, hey, you use too much marijuana, this is affecting our social life, this is affecting our relationship. Or they may find that they're underperforming at work or they need to sneak away from work to use marijuana um, and it's affecting their work. It may be affecting them in other ways, like maybe their doctor is advising them that the marijuana is having an adverse effect on their health in some other way, like affecting their breathing or affecting their mood. Um, All of those things are happening the person acknowledges it, realizes it, and says, yeah, I think marijuana is having a bit of a negative effect on me, and yet nonetheless, they're struggling to cut down or quit. And that would be the picture. Unlike some of the other addictions like alcohol, heroin, methamphetamines, marijuana addiction is less catastrophic. There, <laughs> there, are, there are less, uh, there isn't liver failure from marijuana There isn't uh, an overdose death from marijuana. None of those catastrophic events occur, which I think keeps marijuana addiction off our radar. But what does occur is that it sort of erodes one's other activities and other interests, and marijuana becomes the primary focus of every day uh, to the exclusion of these other interests that are healthy to the individual. Okay, (laughs) it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I really appreciate the question. That's a good question. Uh, and I'm thinking, too, uh, as far as uh, speaking of marijuana, what about the smoking aspect? And we can consume it, I guess, different ways. Yeah. But how, you know, I think it's got to be 30 years since I quit smoking. Yeah. Uh, smoking marijuana, how good can that be as far as the lungs? Yeah, that's a great question. I, there's, there's Actually, marijuana smoking has been very heavily studied, and it it is less toxic as a smoked substance than tobacco. There's no question about it that smoking marijuana is not associated, is not associated with the number of heart attacks and cancers and emphysema like tobacco is. People who smoke marijuana do report that their lungs don't work as well, they don't feel as vigorous and strong, they can't exercise as well, they have a cough, they have phlegm in their lungs. So people who smoke marijuana do have a variety of complaints in how their lungs work. But smoking marijuana is not proven to be as toxic as smoking tobacco. And, 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 but nonetheless, I would say if, if, if a person were going to use marijuana, it might be wise to find a route other than smoking. <laughs> there you go. 
I'm looking at uh, the text screen, Doctor, and uh, we've got a lot of uh, listeners uh, not only listening but uh, joining in on the conversation. Here's one, and I'm sure you see and hear a lot of heartbreaking stories, but uh, this uh, text says this. What can you do for a person who has been addicted to meth for 15 years and living on the streets? What would be the first step, they ask? Yeah. Hey, I do. we do see these folks and uh, treat these folks often at Hennepin Healthcare. Um, each individual is different. Uh, and I think this individual really needs a comprehensive assessment. It may be that at the root of this all, there was some very profound trauma in their life and they may need help addressing that trauma. It may be, on the other hand, not the case. There may be some other mental health issue that's causing or fueling this addiction. Um, or uh, it may be meth addiction alone that's causing all of this. There are some recent developments. In fact, at Hennepin Healthcare was part of a study that showed benefit for certain medications for those who are addicted to methamphetamines. And the study included people who were very severely addicted to methamphetamines. So if this individual has not gotten a you know, relook with a doctor to see whether they've tried every option, medication, treatment modality, um, it's worth getting an update. Uh, so I would say, you know, reach out to Hennepin Healthcare. We have an outpatient clinic and where we do assessments and we can even try this pharmacotherapy or medication therapy for methamphetamines that may help this individual. Meanwhile, there are services in the community called harm reduction services. While this person is, you know, battling meth addiction and trying to stay alive, harm reduction services such as needle exchange, housing, and a variety of other things can help them stay alive as they're battling methamphetamines and then hopefully they can get, you know, they can get better, they can recover. I wanted to ask you about Hennepin Healthcare. What, what, as people are listening here, and maybe it's uh, about themselves or somebody they care about, if uh, if they want help, uh, how do they get in touch with uh, Hennepin? I mean, do they need a referral, or what would the process be? Uh, no, we well, the addiction clinic takes referrals off the street, um, so anybody can call us. Um, we do a lot of work with opioid, alcohol and methamphetamine addictions, but we're willing to talk to folks about other types of addictions. Um, and it's reasonable to call us and try to schedule an appointment, 612-873-5500. If you wanted a general appointment at Hennepin, that's 612-873-MY-MD. That would be more like for a, a primary care doctor, which we have a, a great team of uh, primary care doctors as well. So... Um, yeah, it, people do not need a referral. They can call good. directly and um, request an appointment. I was wondering, I don't know if there's data available uh, with, with other states that had already legalized pot, uh, and if you have colleagues uh, across the country. Uh, have Is there any data or even uh, any uh, comments about uh, problems, more problems with marijuana now than, than before? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think the state legislature was very aware as they were making this bill, this law that is now in, in place, of the 
problem of childhood poisoning. Uh, or uh, And this is something that I want to highlight for the listeners, that if they are interested in using marijuana now that it's legal in our state, uh, it is really important to keep those marijuana products away from young children. I mean, uh, any children, all children, but particularly young children like toddlers who might not know what this product is and might consume it as if it were candy or, you know, eat it the way innocently sort of eat it the way toddlers do. And then they can become very sick uh, and, and they end up needing to go to the emergency department. And this was a a significant issue in other states when marijuana was legalized, that the rate of childhood poisonings went up. And so it's it's very important for adults to store their cannabis marijuana products safely away from any child. Uh, And so I would say that is the number one thing. Besides that, you hear a lot of reports from other states. I will summarize them by saying those who love cannabis, marijuana, uh, those who love marijuana don't think there was much of a problem and they even think the state was made better. Those who hate marijuana can find reasons to hate the fact that marijuana was legalized. So everyone sort of has an opinion about it. Uh, if you, sure. But if you visit California or Colorado or Washington or wherever, uh, there's still beautiful states. The sky hasn't fallen. Life is carrying on. Um, I think there are some things to be aware of with legal marijuana, but I think Minnesota will carry carry on. We'll be okay. We need to be. We need to protect our young young people, uh, and I, I think it's going to be. I think we'll adapt to the new life with legal marijuana in our state. All right, very good. Yeah. Uh, stand by, doctor. We're going to take a quick break here. We have remaining minutes of our health show uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, 651-461-9226. When we come back, we'll grab some more text messages from our listeners here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Stay with us. It's a Sunday morning in CCO line, 67 degrees. More showers on the way today, tonight, and tomorrow. We'll get you details in just a matter of minutes. Denny Long in for the ailing Susie Jones. Uh, she hopes to be back next uh, Sunday morning. In the meantime, on our health hour, we're talking with Charles, uh, Dr. Charles Reznikoff. Uh, from Hennepin Healthcare, he is an addiction medicine physician and answering all sorts of questions this morning. And, uh, Doctor, I know our time is, is limited here, and you're going to have to help me with this one. Uh, Texter says, I have a friend that has been on, is it Suboxone? Yeah. For a couple of years for addiction to painkillers. How hard is it to taper off Suboxone? Isn't it just a man-made substance to trick your brain into believing you have the painkillers? Can you ever go off it, or will you always need that little boost? Those are some questions from a listener. Great question. I appreciate that. Suboxone is the trade name for the the drug. The proper medication name is buprenorphine, but everybody commonly calls it Suboxone. Suboxone is a medication for people who have opioid use disorder. In other words, opioid addiction, fentanyl or opioid painkillers or heroin. Suboxone, when you are on it. So first of all, opioid addiction, unfortunately, is not curable. People go into recovery, meaning they manage it and it's a quiet and it's not affecting their life. The addiction is not affecting their life. That's recovery. But 
opioid addiction is not curable, meaning at some point in your life you never need to worry about it again. It, it always sort of stays with you. That's the bad news. The good news is that Suboxone and other treatments such as methadone and naltrexone can help you manage the addiction and help you get into recovery. Uh, so the current recommendation is nobody needs to taper off Suboxone. It is true that you're on a medication. And a lot of people say, I don't want to be. I feel like, uh, you know, now I'm stuck on Suboxone and now I'm stuck on a medication every day. That is true that you'll still be on a medication. But remember earlier this hour I said, what is addiction? Addiction is when a medication interferes with you living your normal healthy life. Uh, When a drug Uh, Any drug uh, interferes with you living your normal, healthy life. What happens when people go on Suboxone, if it works, is that it actually frees them up to go engage in their normal, healthy life. They go back to work. They're doing great with their family. Their finances are better. Their health is better. They're better in all these ways that the addiction has harmed them, but they're taking one medication a day. Well, you know what? A lot of us take medications every day. So the question is really, is the Suboxone helping them live a healthier life or not? And if they're living a healthier life on Suboxone, I would never push someone off Suboxone or try to get them to taper. If they're living a healthy life and things are going well, they can stay on that medicine. Now, a lot of people want to taper, and that's fine. I get it. If they want to taper, they want to try to get off this medication and do it without the medication, I'll help them do that too if that's their wish. And then I would just advise them, go slow. (laughs) And I often ask them, how long were you using opioids? And they'll say, oh, I've been using opioids for 10 years, 15 years. Say, well, you're not going to reverse all that in 30 days. You might take six months or even a year to to taper off Suboxone. If you've been on heroin or opioids for 15 years, you're not going to reverse it in 30 days. So go slow if you want to taper. We just have a couple of minutes to go on the show, Doctor. It's flying by this morning. There's so many things to talk about. Uh, Maybe we can spend the last minute or two talking about answering this listener question. I'm told there is a medication for addiction used to treat fibromyalgia. Uh, Your comment on that? I'm not sure. There are Hmm. a couple different medications the listener may be saying, but it may be the medicine we were just talking about buprenorphine, which can come in the form of Suboxone, but can come in other forms that may be more appropriate for people with pain, such as Butrans or Belbuca. Uh, so there, there is this medicine, buprenorphine, which is used for people with chronic pain as well as people with addiction. I would have the listeners should look into that, Butrans or Belbuca. Finally, wanted to get to, and maybe we can spend this last minute uh, asking you, uh, folks trying to get through recovery, whatever the substance, there's got to be a problem with with some folks with stigma of that addiction, right? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, It's, I believe it will get better, but it is a huge problem. And it's just hard for anyone to talk about what they're dealing with because as soon as they say they have an addiction or they're in recovery, people make all sorts of assumptions about them that maybe don't trust them. They wouldn't hire them in a, in, in a workplace. So 
I do think it's a huge problem. I think if there's any upside to all the stuff that's happening these days with addiction, the public health epidemics from methamphetamines and fentanyl and alcohol and all the rest, you know, maybe we'll start to understand and accept addiction as a disease uh, rather than a personal failing. Finally, boy, (laughs) I want to squeeze this one in if I can. Uh, Good morning. It says if a person has been on a low dose of Oxycontin for 40 years, can that lead to dementia? It's a great question. I have never seen that it would cause dementia. But if someone over time, just with age, is having memory issues or cognitive issues, thinking issues, it's a good time to relook at that oxycodone because what happens is that people take oxycodone when they're young, but then as they age, their bodies and their brains change. And as their bodies and brains change, they react differently to the oxycodone. And so I do think as people age, it's worth relooking at all of their medications, including the oxycodone, and say, is this still serving that individual? Should we lower the dose? Should we change the medications? But I have not heard that oxycodone taken as prescribed causes dementia, although it's a great question, and I think there's probably some researcher out there looking at this right now. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, Well, we're out of time. Dr. Reznikov, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us. I hope we can do this again. And if you need some help for you or someone else, uh, call Hennepin, 612-873-6963. Again, doctor, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. 67 degrees in the Twin Cities, your money heading up next on 830. This is WCCO.